This is Pastor Mike Fabares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your walk with Christ. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to focalpointradio.org or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. We have eight distinctives, highlighted distinctives at Compass Bible Church. And they are distinctives that I articulated because they are things that if we do not work to maintain them, we will lose them. Having been in ministry for about 22 years now, I recognized that if you do not work to maintain these eight things, if they're not constantly on your priority list, you will lose ground in these eight things. Of course, our first one is the centrality of Scripture. Second one, expository preaching. And the third one is a high view of God. Now, if it's a natural thing, it doesn't make the list. If it's something that Satan, the flesh, and uh, the world is pushing against, then we want to, uh, we want to work to maintain it. We want to work to uh, promote it. The high view of God, let me just put it this way. If you were to die, let's pose it as a question. Let's say you had 30 minutes in the presence of God. Right now, we could transport you right into the, the presence of the throne room of the Creator. Would your view of God go up or down? <laughs> well, maybe your view of God's too high. Right? Maybe you'd get there and go, oh, he's not as great as I thought he was. No. I mean, obviously, there is, by definition, a sense of God that he is so exalted that you couldn't help but elevate your view of God if you stood in his presence. Isaiah had that opportunity, at least in a vision, in Isaiah chapter 6. And let's begin there before we even pray tonight. Isaiah chapter 6. The terms of this text are where I got the wording for the third distinctive of Compass Bible Church. I know it's an analogy, high view of God, high, low, medium, but this is what we're getting at. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, here's the words, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I understand that's a spatial description. But this is where the picture goes. His view is elevated. His concept is exalted. He sees the seraph, and seraph means what? Burning ones. He sees the burning angelic spirits, each having six wings. With two wings, they cover their faces. With two, they cover their feet. With two, they're flying around. And they were calling out to one another... Here's the fundamental overarching description of God. It's not love, it's not peace, it's not joy. It's holy, holy, holy. He is Yahweh Almighty. He's different, he's separate, he's not like us. He is Yahweh, the all-powerful one. 
And the whole earth, if you look for it, according to Romans chapter 1, is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke, and he couldn't help but say, Woe to me, I am I'm ruined, he cried. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh Almighty. Your view of God will be elevated when you see him. And if your view of God will be elevated or exalted when you see him, that means that your view of God right now is not accurate, right? It's less than it should be. It should be higher because it's not in keeping with reality. That's why it's important for us to be here this semester to see if we can exalt our view of God. Now, there are so many passages I want to look at tonight. We don't have time to look at this one, but I wanted you at least to jot it down. Malachi chapter 1. Here are people of God. The amazing thing about Malachi chapter 1, it is in the set of what we call the post-exilic prophets. The post-exilic prophets. Now, the prophets prior to the exile when Babylon took Israel... Uh, specifically the southern tribes of Judah into captivity in Babylon for 70 years in 586 B.C. They were embroiled in idolatry. If you just read the prophets, Isaiah way back when, and then Jeremiah right at the cusp of the fall of the the southern kingdom, all they're doing is saying your view of God is too low, your view of God is too low. You don't see God for who he is. That's why Isaiah even starts with this. They go into exile and they come back from exile. And if you study the three post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Malachi, um, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, you find that their concern is we are going to honor God. I mean, if pre-exilic Israel viewed God like this, post-exilic Israel, boy, they were serious. They were not going to be idolaters. They were not going to bring God down. And yet, in the post-exilic condemnation of the nation in Malachi chapter 1, after their 70 years in the doghouse, God says to them, a son honors his father and a servant his master. This is verse 6. I know you didn't turn there. Some of you overachievers did, but but write it down at least. Malachi chapter 1 verse 6. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me? Says Yahweh Almighty. There's the same phrase from Isaiah 6. That concept is phenomenal. If you were to drop into Old Testament history and find a time where God was exalted, you would think it would be here. And yet God looks at them, and in the passage, the real crescendo of it all is, Oh, that there were one among you, verse 10, who would shut the temple doors so that you might not uselessly Uh, that you might not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you. All because your view of God was too low. We have a long way to go, and I think we should open with prayer, confessing our need to exalt our view of God. And I don't understand how a Christian could not agree with that. (laughs) Um, But I know some people think we're zealots and over the top. But one day we'll all see him. And by that I mean we will be in the presence of God and we will learn that our view of God was far too small and way too inadequate. So let's work on that tonight and for the remaining 10 weeks or whatever we've got left. Let's pray. God, we want to begin our night 
thinking about the nature of your being, of your substance, of your essence. And I pray that we would work tonight as we get past some of the preliminary issues of the last couple of weeks and start to think about you in a way that is, um, is mind-blowing, <laughs> takes our, the parameters of our minds and stretches them to try and comprehend who you are. God, we should, as I shared with our ministry team not long ago, we should deplore and despise a casual, low view of God. And God, it should start with our own hearts. We don't want to entertain a comfortable view of who you are. We want to see you for who you are, high and exalted, with beings that would freak us out, these seraphs, not even ruling with, with pride or arrogance, but they're covering their face and their feet and they're saying, he's holy, he's holy, he's holy and the whole world is full of his glory. If you'd look for it, if you'd search for it, if you'd study, you'd see it. God is a great and exalted being. So before we get to the triunity of God next week and the attributes of God, Lord willing, the following weeks, we want to begin by looking at the, the substance, the essence of God, the nature of God. And I pray that tonight you would expand our minds in this study in Jesus' name. Amen. Made the distinction in the prayer, not on purpose, but the distinction between what we're doing tonight and what we'll be doing in the future. There are two nights we're going to spend on the nature of God. Tonight, which is a broad discussion of the nature of God, and next week exclusively because of the attacks upon the doctrine, the triunity of God. So we'll look at the triunity next week. We'll deal with the nature of God this week, and then we'll spend four weeks after that with a pause for fall fest uh, we will spend four weeks looking at the attributes of God. The attributes of God are how we describe him, his proclivities, the way he acts, the way we can characterize God. The nature of God is what is his substance, what is his being, what is he versus what is he like, what does he do. So tonight, let's do that, and we'll do it with a broad brush. There's lots of texts to look at, but the first thing I want to begin with, because when we think about a high and exalted God, it's important for us to remember, as we really touched on last week, that the God we're going to study is knowable. He is knowable. He can be known. And I hope I made the case last week that the scripture can be known. We can be certain about the scripture. God didn't reveal everything. That's where we ended last time. But what he did reveal, we should be able to grasp. It is possible. And the God that those propositions describe is knowable. Now, that may sound counterintuitive when I give you the first point here. It is important to know that your knowledge of God will never be complete. Never be complete. Some theologies like to call this the immensity of God or the incomprehensibility of God, that he cannot be fully known but in our day, I want to put a heading over this that he can be known. He is knowable. The God of the scripture is a God who has revealed himself and says, I can be known. If you search for me with all of your heart, you can know me. As opposed to all the other worldviews we started with that say he can't be known. We don't understand him. We're the modern emergent church that loves to banter about, about how he's, see, we just can't really, how could we possibly know him? He can't be figured out. We can't even try. Let's just sit around and discuss, you know, your, your impressions and mine. The knowability of God. 
our knowledge will be incomplete because we are finite and he is infinite. A passage you might want to jot down, we won't turn to this one, you know it, is Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Just to remind us that God is is high and exalted and we are finite. He says in, in verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed and he remembers that we're dust. That's all we are. As for man, his days are like grass, flourishes for a while like the flower of a field, wind blows over it, it's gone, place remembers it no more. But God is from everlasting to everlasting and his love is toward those people like an everlasting thing, an immense thing with those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children. We are finite, we'll have a hard time knowing him. Psalm 139, I I should have turned to all these. They're close. They're all next door neighbors. Psalm 139. And again, I use this carefully because it is an old theological phrase. (laughs) And it used to not be uh, exploited for heretical purposes as frequently as it is today. And that is, and the heading on my notes, is the incomprehensibility of God. He is, in one sense, incomprehensible. And by that, I mean we can't have exhaustive knowledge of him. And that's helpful. Psalm 139, verse 1, O Yahweh, you've searched me, you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. And if you think about that, being one of billions of people in our day, that's an amazing thought. He's overwhelmed with the, the, the perceptivity that God has. He can perceive everything about him, every minute detail. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You are sovereign in your knowledge, even of what I'm going to say before I say it. You hem me in behind and before you've laid your hand on me. Now, just that one concept, this is what we'll study later in, in, in terms of under the heading of the omniscience of, of God. And if you ponder that, and we will for a while, it's mind-boggling. Well, here's his response to it. Such knowledge is too wonderful me wonderful for me. It is too lofty for me to attain. I can't fully process it. That is an expression we find often in the scripture. You're in Psalm 139. Go forward six Psalms to Psalm 145. Same concept, same idea. Psalm 145 verse 1. I will extol you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is Yahweh and most worthy of praise. Underline this. His greatness no one can fathom. Now again, that's been twisted into a heretical roadblock for people to say, hey, see there, you can't know him. That is not the meaning of the incomprehensibility of God. The incomprehensibility of God, or what I'm saying is that our knowledge will not be complete, is that you and I cannot exhaustively process the God of the Bible. He cannot be fully, as as Paul put it in Romans 11, traced out. His ways are beyond us. But it doesn't mean that he is not knowable. Example, Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm sorry, 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. People often quote Jeremiah 29, verse 11, but that's not where I'm taking. Jeremiah chapter 9. Now remember, some people think, well, New Covenant truth, God has revealed himself in Christ. 
So now we can know him, and the Old Testament God could not be known. I want to show you, that's why I'm using an Old Testament text to illustrate that the Scripture repeatedly is getting us to understand that God can be known, even though he is incomprehensible in the sense that he can't be exhaustively processed. Jeremiah chapter 9, are you with me? Verse 23. This is what Yahweh says, Jeremiah 9, 23. You remember these familiar verses? Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom... Let not the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he cannot understand me and there's no way he can know me. That's not what it says. I mean, if you really want to get excited about an achievement in your life, get, an exci- get excited about this, that he understands and knows me, that people can understand and know God, that I am the Lord. And that I understand something about the fact that the God of the Bible exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. And if you want to be excited about something, be excited about your comprehensibility of God. Your ability to comprehend him within finite limits. I put it this way, letter B, just to balance this out. He can be known and understood. The God of the Bible cannot be fully known, but he can be known. Now, years ago, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have put letter B uh, started with the word but, but it is an important contrasting statement to the statement of the incomprehensibility of God, that we cannot have ex- exhaustive knowledge of God. You watch, if you're not tuned into the debate yet, the new debate in ecclesiology, in church, 21st century church leadership is, if you claim that you can know and understand God, you're arrogant And I love the fact that this verse is right here. That is something we should be proud of, right? Let the wise man not boast in his wisdom, the rich man or the strong man in his strength or his riches. But if you're going to boast, boast about your knowledge of God, that you not only know him, but that you understand him. Now, is anybody arrogantly saying, I understand him fully? No, but we are saying we understand him. And if you want to say that's boasting, that's the kind of boasting that God requires of those who understand him. And again, I know I brought up the emergent church a lot, and I think about half are kind of tuned into that debate. But if you're not, that's the label over the movement that is taking over the church by storm. Young pastors, you've heard me joke about this with the goatees, right? And we employ some here, right, that are orthodox. (laughs) But the cool pastors are basically saying we cannot be so arrogant as to think we understand God. And the Bible says we can and when you do understand it, you ought to throw a party. And, the, and as you start to understand something of his justice, his eternal life, I'm sorry, his kindness or his righteousness, then that's something worth getting excited about. Next to this in your notes, jot down John 17, verses 1 through 3. Now, in the New Testament, the ante is upped. Christ reveals, Christ reveals the Father. And as Christ prayed this, what is often called the high priestly prayer in John 17, he looks toward heaven in verse 1 and he says, the time has come, Father, to glorify your Son. He says, so that your Son may glorify you. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted authority to him over all the peoples and he gave them eternal life to those that you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. In other words, if you want to talk about what Christianity is, it's people saying, we know God. And that is not just in some quasi-bizarre relational way. 
That is in the sense of what Jeremiah 9 said, people who are theistic and embrace God in mercy, understand his, his need for, for mercy, that he's a sinner, they can know and understand God. That is eternal life, to know God. God is knowable. Okay, put those two together. Think about this. Our knowledge of God will not be complete. Even if you're Methuselah and you live for almost a thousand years, you would not have enough time to fully comprehend the amazing and incomprehensible intricacies of God. But he can be known and he can be understood. And you can, this leads us to the third point then, which should be the passion of the Christian's life, increase our knowledge of him. We can and we should make that our passion. If that's the goal of New Testament salvation, to know God, and I know in our kind of uh, soft American culture, it's always seen as a relationship, right? I want to know him, like have a relationship with him. I understand that part. But the issue that we're concerned with in this study is that we can know him in an increasing sense of knowledge, not relating, but real gnosis, real knowledge. Some examples. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. This is a great text. It's a fantastic text. It's our partner's theme passage. Colossians chapter 1. And <laughs> you say, I don't want it more complicated. No, it's better, not just complicated. Did I say just complicated? Not just complicated. It's not complicated. It's just better. Colossians 1, 10. Let's start in verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we haven't stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you, look at this great phrase, with the knowledge of his will, that's one part of it, through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and you may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, now this is the phrase, growing in the knowledge of God. Along with that will come things like this, verse 11, and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so you have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. But the core of this is, Paul says, my ministry is about having you grow in your knowledge of God. And like Hebrews chapter 5 says, if you've been a Christian for a long time, God's expectation is that your knowledge of him is better now than it was 10 years ago. And I guess I should say that if you've been a Christian two years, your knowledge of God ought to be deeper and broader. The breadth and depth of your knowledge of God ought to be more now than it was last year. And God is concerned that we make progress in this. As a matter of fact, you remember Hebrews chapter 5, he says, by this time you ought to be teachers. And some of you need the, the elementary truths again. So we should push ourselves. We can and should grow in this knowledge if you take if you're a note taker, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, Peter ends this section with a great call that we should grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. So we should be studying God. And I should bring you a bibliography at some point, maybe midway, maybe at the end of the series, but we want you to be reading books about the nature and attributes of God. So God is knowable. Our knowledge will never be complete, but he can be known. Just that truth is worth you coming tonight because this is going to be something that will be attacked on Christian radio, Christian music, Christian magazines, Christian articles, and you're going to say, now, wait a minute. We saw the fact that knowing that God cannot be fully comprehended does not mean that God cannot be known. 
and that we can still make emphatic statements about who he is and understand him. Now, let's understand some things about his nature more specifically. God, this may sound blasphemous, but it's not, is a person. God is a person. Okay? Now, God is not a person like us. We are persons like him. And that's a big difference. I don't mean to put the indefinite article in there to say he's just one of the guys, right? But he is a person. And the only reason you know anything about what it is to be a person is because he created you in his image. See? Trees and rocks and the moon. They are not people. They're things. And animals even are not persons. Sorry, PETA. <laughs> but they're not. We are persons. Now, animals do have one thing going for them that people have going for them, and that is this, that God granted them something we call life. He is living. God is, is alive. He's alive, right? What did that mean? It means that I'm not pushing him around like a ball. Frankenstein now is thinking and talking and rising off the gurney, and he's alive. He's moving on his own. He's living. And by that, here's some other words I mean by that. He's conscious, okay? He's conscious. He is self-aware, okay? Plants are not self-aware. He possesses knowledge. There's data that he not only possesses, but he can process. He has a perspective. See, those are things that are part of living personhood. And God is a person. Look at Jeremiah chapter 10 with me. This is a good passage, starting in verse 1. Note takers, I don't know how you do this. Do you write it down first and then read it? Okay, Jeremiah 10, verses 1 through 7. <laughs> that would be helpful if I finally got around to doing it your way, right? <laughs> Jeremiah 10, 1 through 7. Conscious, active, self-aware, having knowledge, has perspective. He is living which, by the way, well, that doesn't sound like a big deal, is really a novel concept for many philosophers who do not see God as alive. He's not living. He's something else. He's a principle. He's, he's, a, uh, he's, a, he's a force. He's a concept. Love is a concept. Love is not a person, right? Well, I thought it said God is love. I understand that. And that we'll look at that when we get to his attributes, but justice is not a person. Concern is not a person. Those are principles. Those are con Some people think God is a concept. He is the, the culmination of all those concepts. But that's not what the Bible says. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 1. Hear what Yahweh says to you, O house of Israel. This is what Yahweh says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the sky. Though, he says, the nations are terrified by them, don't. Do it yourself. The customs of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with a chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nail so that it will not totter. Here's the line I want you to get, and there are several passages I could have gone to, but underline this next phrase. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch. 
That just worked well in English. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch. That's what your God is. Their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do you no harm, nor can they do any good. Now we turn to the real God. No one is like you, O Yahweh. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you? And again, the contrast is because you're not a thing. You're a person. You are real. You're animate. You're conscious. You have perspective. You're self-aware. You're active. You process information. O kings of the nation, this is your due. Among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. Now, if there's anybody who's a real person, it would be the wise men of the nations and, you know, the kings or leaders of, of, of kingdoms. And he says, take those and no one is like you. Scarecrow in a melon patch, or in our day, things you plug in, you know, or things you put in your bank, or a person who is far better than the best of your persons, the wisest, smartest, most powerful, the kings, the wise men. God is a living being. And again, I don't want to belabor this because if you've been through partners, this is old stuff. But the elements of personality include thinking, processing data. We call that an intellect. God thinks. Let her see. He feels, he has emotion. And, and fourthly, he decides he has volition. He has a will. Now those things are not a reference point for us to now extrapolate some view of God. It's just the opposite. You were made in his image. We have not created God in our image. I guess you could say that as a skeptic or an atheist. But the reality is the Bible teaches that the God, the self-sufficient, transcendent one, is a person who made people. And because you know what it is to hurt, to be joyful, to decide to create, I watched a, uh, a craftsman commercial where the guy, did you see this one? And I'm, you know, tempted to covet his tools because the tools are really mighty nice in the commercial. They're never, you know, they're never really look clean and shiny and, you know, you just can brush your hair in the crescent wrench. But, sorry, he builds the playhouse for the kids on the grass. Have you seen that commercial? There's several like it. He builds it. He's out there using wrenches. Everything fits. It's perfect. And he stands back in the garage and he sits there with that man smile of contentment. And it kind of goes, you know, it's fuzzy to the, the treehouse, not a treehouse, play yard thing. See, I'm real technical on this commercial. The play yard thing, back to him. and hmm. You know the experience of making something, see? And that reality, see, dolphins, though, I know PETA thinks they're so smart, never build, they don't build anything, right? There's no hospitals down there, right? There's no really cool, I don't know, you know, snack bars, right? There's no, there's no malts or shakes or, you know, a great Eiffel Tower that they build down there. They're just animals. People create because God creates. People enjoy because God enjoys. People are not instinctive. They have instinct. But they're more than that because God is more than that. And when we start to experience a little bit of what we experience, we need to say, I only know what that is because God is like that. 
Now, I don't want to extrapolate God from my experience, but I want to use my experience to understand I experience that because God is the creator and the archetypal person who instilled me with those things. It's like marriage, right? We don't want to think that Christ in the church, well, that's something good, and I understand marriage, and, and I can extrapolate that to Christ in the church. No, the only reason there is marriage is because God decided that Christ in the church would be illustrated with a relationship. Same with personality. If you want verses for each of these, how about Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 for letter B? I love this statement. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. That's just a great phrase, and it's a great word. That's Isaiah 1.18. Let us reason together. God reasons, right? Just an example. Isaiah 6.6, letter C. Yahweh was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. He feels pain. He feels bad. Volition, letter D. How about Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God created, which I think is such a powerful concept, creating things. No drawbridges in the jungle, you know, no, no iPods, you know, in the trees of the Amazon, right? Man creates, people create. God is a person. So in that regard, we're like him. I know what people want to say, God's like us, but we're like him. God is a person. Okay, that was simple. It gets harder. <laughs> Number three, God is a spirit. God is a spirit. Now, seriously, I know there are some theologians that fight over that definite article right there. They don't like it. God is not a spirit. John forces God. God is spirit. Fine. Um, a lot of good theologians. The Westminster Catechism. Any of you have to memorize the Westminster Catechism? What is it, question four or whatever? God is a spirit. I think it's fine to call him a spirit, just like we call him a person. God is of the category of person. God is of the category of spirit. He is a spirit. Like our personhood, right? He is not a spirit like us. We are a spirit like him, only this time it gets harder because we're not a spirit like him. We are encased in this thing called material, right? We have a physical container. We're encased in flesh. God is not. But you are spirit. Cut your arms off and your legs off. Now you're half a person, right? No, you're a whole person. Why? Because you're spirit. You're not, you're not your body. Your body is just what you live in. God is a spirit, and we are a spirit like him, only he made us special. Now, angels could have the same discussion about spirit that we just had about, about personhood. We can say we know what it is to think and to feel and to, and to choose and use our will. And we know exactly what that's like. I mean, not fully, but we, we understand the, the, the typology. Angels can say the same thing about spirit, but we can't. Because our spirit is a little different. It's encased in flesh. Now, there will be a time, in my theology at least, where you are separated from your flesh, and the Bible says that you will be, here's a good word, naked. Naked, as they say in the South. Naked. Look at that guy, naked. <laughs> And that, according to Scripture, is a time when you're without your physical body. That's in the interim between the resurrection and your death. Only people that aren't naked are people that are there who remain until the coming of the Lord. But anyway, what do we mean by this? Well, it's a good question. Glad you asked. Letter A. Spirit is a hard thing to define. You spend an hour thinking about it. Uh, 
because it really defines something that it's not. There you go. Right? In other words, spirit is, let's put it this way, is simply saying it's not physical. It's a person without physical reality. Okay? We start with personhood, intellect, emotion, will. All we know in intellect, emotion, and will is that expression through a physical reality. We talked about communication of spirits on Sunday, which, by the way, didn't go over very well. People don't like what I said on Sunday. But when I have a thought and I want to get it to you, I get my spirit to use the hardware to start moving things around through the little hard drive up here between my ears to get my mouth and my throat and my lungs to work together to flap my tongue around inside my mouth. And there I'm smooth making sounds. And if we were in China, it would sound different. If we were in Turkey, it would sound different. And it goes into your inner three little bones in your ear and they move and impulses to the brain and your brain decodes it and your spirit goes, I get what you're saying, man. That's communication. It's the only kind of communication you know is through corporal stuff, flesh. Now, spirits don't have all that. So when I say spirit, what I mean is you're a person without a body. That's what the word means. It is something, to put it in a negative, to define it negative, in a negative, it is non-physical. There's no tangible reality to it. The whole medieval discussion in Scholastics of how many angels can you put on the pin of a head? The head of a pin. Pinhead. <laughs> the pinhead remark. The head of a pin. And the answer is, as many as you want. Because they don't take up any space. Right? That's the answer. Because they're not physical. A pin is physical in that little space. How many can you put there? It doesn't matter. Because they're not spatial. Non-physical. Jot this down. And you know this discussion with the woman at the well. Jesus says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So I know this about God. Contra the Mormons, he's not a person in a physical container. He is a person without a physical container. There's a way to talk about God. It's kind of crass, but God is a person without a physical container. Now next week, we'll blow that whole theory out of the water, right? Triunity of God. He has to become one of us or chooses to become one of us to redeem fallen spirits and human containers but God is a spirit which is by the way another reference if you want to put a cross reference by the John 424 is that what I said John 424 put Exodus 20 verse 4 Sunday school grads know what Exodus 20 is Exodus 12 is the Passover Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments you're afraid to say that but you you, you can be sure Ten, ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And rule number two was, you shall not what? Make any graven images. That's the old translation. So that means you haven't read them in your new translation, huh? <laughs> graven? What's a graven? You shall not make any idol in the form of anything in heaven, above, or earth beneath. Why was God so big on that? Because he's a spirit. God is not contained in a physical container. Don't try to worship God in a physical container. Now, the unfortunately, Aaron kind of messed this whole thing up and made a golden calf, which if you read something about ancient Mesopotamian idolatry, the concept was not that the deity was the calf. The concept was, okay, we're not going to make a graven image and pretend that God is in the calf. We're going to say that God is on the calf. That was the sin. 
It was still a form of idolatry. But if you asked an Israelite, are you worshiping an idol? They said, no, we're kind of using an idol to worship. And God still was upset with that. And that's that classic illustration, the crass illustration. Not an illustration, it's a historical recounting of what Moses made them do. You remember what he made them do? Grind up the golden calf and do what? Drink it. So that they could find out the end of their idol. The idol's end. Out their rear end. That was the point. Sorry. Read the story. Now, I want you to look up this passage, and this is important because your Bible, depending on what translation you have, you need a marginal note here. Luke 24. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 24. Spirit defines what he is not. He is not a person in a physical container. He is non-physical. He's a person without a physical container. Well, how do I know that's what spirit means? Well, if no other passage proves it, which there are several, here's one that is ironclad. Verses 36 through 39. Luke 24, 36 through 39. Post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, Christ appears to his disciples. While his disciples were still talking, verse 36, Jesus himself stood among them and he said, Shalom, peace be with you. And they were startled and they were frightened, thinking that they saw, circle this word, a ghost. Bad translation. Ghost. I had an email question about this. Put in the margin, uh, pneuma, pneuma, right? P-N, pneuma, P-N-U. Don't make me spell it. Uh, M-A, pneuma. Pneuma is the word spirit. Pneuma, spirit. Pneumonia, right? It also means breath, this invisible thing inside of you. Breath, spirit, same word. Because it's the invisible thing inside of you. It is the real you, the pneuma. We want an English word for it, spirit. We thought we saw a, a spirit. Verse 38. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you have doubts? Why do doubts arise in your mind? Verse 39. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I. Touch me and see. Now circle this. Here's the word again. A pneuma, a spirit, does not have flesh and bones that you see that I have. See, a spirit without a physical container. That's what we mean by like God is spirit. Angels are ministering spirits, Hebrews chapter one. They don't have flesh and bones. If it's what you're talking about, a disembodied spirit, people call Luke 24. So God does not have a body. God does not have a body. He is non-physical. Problem is, there's all these verses that say he does have a body. Maybe the Mormons are right. Here's a big word, but it's worth learning if you don't know it already. Oh, wow. Oh, showing all my points ahead of time. <laughs> Letter B. God is, though, as a spirit, described in anthropomorphisms. Anthropomorphisms which is not as hard as it sounds. Anthropos in Greek, anthropology, is what? Man, person. Morph, look at that thing, morph into something else. Morphology, morphe in Greek is form, human form. God is described in human form, but he is clearly in Scripture a spirit. And we'll drive that home even further here in a second. Job 19.21 which is one of many, but I just picked one for each. The Bible says, Job says, have pity on me, 
For the hand of God has struck me. Hand of God. He has a hand. Mormons are right. No, 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 no. This is what we call an anthropomorphism. God described with human terms. In the story, we know what happened. Satan came, by God's allowance, and caused sickness in his life. Did God's hand ever come out of heaven and go swap to Job? No. But he describes what happened with the hand of God. The hand of God hit me. God hit me with his hand. Mm. It's an anthropomorphism. Eyes. I try to pick some familiar verses. 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth. Looking for someone to, whose heart is fully his to strengthen. He wants to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. The eyes of the Lord. So he's doing this right now. Right? I wonder if his eyes are green. No, brown. He's Jewish, right? No, I guess he's not. He's super Jewish. Who knows what color his eyes are? He doesn't have eyes because he's a spirit. And just like demonic spirits don't need eyes to perceive, God doesn't need eyes to perceive because he is spirit without a physical container. And that's what we mean by spirit. How about his feet? Exodus 24, 9. Exodus 24, 9. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders went up to worship God. They saw this vision of God, the God of Israel. And under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire. Under whose feet? God's feet. And we could look at his back when he was, Moses was hidden in the cleft of the Lord. He's got a back, he's got hands, he's got, sounds like a man. Well, here's another term, chicken pomorphisms. How about that one? <laughs> look at this passage with me. Psalm 91, verses 1 through 4. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He's got a shadow, he must have a body. I will say of Yahweh, he is my refuge and my fortress. No, he's a building now. My God in whom I trust. Surely, this is Psalm 91.3, he will save you from the fowler's snare and from deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his... And under his wings... Oh, that's not what I pictured. You will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. Even the last phrase defines what we're talking about. Verse 1. This is anthropomorphic. This is architectpromorphic. This is chickenomorphisms. This, these are pictures of God to try and express his activity. Eyes of the Lord, he perceives. The ears of the Lord, he hears. The hand of the Lord, he acts. The back of the Lord, he's going away. The feet of the Lord, he's moving. The feathers of the Lord, he's protecting, he's covering. God is described in anthropomorphisms. Let's make this clear then. Let her see. He is invisible. If he has hands and feet and a back and got wings and feathers, surely he's not invisible. No, the Bible's really clear. These are anthropomorphisms, and we know they are because the Bible makes it clear you can't see him. One book, two passages, 1 Timothy. Let's go to 1 Timothy in the New Testament and take a peek at this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Here's what we mean. Spirit is not seen. 1 Timothy 1, 17. Now to the king eternal, he's always been, immortal, he's not like us, and what's the next one? Invisible. Can't see him. The only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, you're in chapter 1. Go to chapter 6. Same book. Look at the uh, benediction, the good word about God. Verse, 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. Speaking about the coming of the Lord, the wrapping up of things, eschatological matters, which God will bring about in his own time. 
God, now he's going to describe, and this is the middle of 1 Timothy 6.15, the blessed and only ruler, the exclusive ruler, the king of kings, all the kings have to bow to this king, the Lord of lords, all the bosses have to bow to this boss, who alone is immortal, and he lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see or is capable of seeing, to him be honor and might forever. God has not been seen, but man, those passages, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne. You understand, these are all just expressions or visions. <laughs> Reminds me of the old chick tracks. Do you remember the chick tracks? When they show God, he was just like this faceless, glowing thing, right? Um, you won't even see the faceless, glowing thing. He can't be seen. God is a spirit. He is invisible. What about that whole face-to-face thing? You do understand that the dwelling of God among men it means a relational issue. I am now in, a, in the presence of the power and the glory and the majesty of the creator. That's what we're talking about. But we will not see him. The great thing is, we'll learn this next week, obviously you know it, but the triunity of God, God manifests himself in a, in a face that you will see. And that gets exciting. We will see the face of God because we will perceive the incarnate Christ with our resurrected eyeballs. So that's the seeable aspect of the triune God. But he is invisible. All right, number four. God is transcendent. I use this word a lot because in one sense, I probably couldn't have used it 50 years ago, but it's kind of lost its heretical baggage. And it's a word that I think helps to describe this whole category of God that uh, we'll group together with these three subpoints. When we say transcendent, here's what we mean about God. He is a, now note the spelling of this, unlimitable. He's unlimitable. He he cannot be bound. He's boundless, I guess would be a good word. Uh, If you read old theologies, we call this infinitude. That's what the theologians call it. He is beyond categorizing. And when we say things like that, what we mean by that is he is not limited to the fabric of our universe, what we now call, I guess we call it fabric, time and space. God is not bound by the thing that he made. He is other than that. He is external to that. Now the imminence of God, the eminence of God, the presence of God, that's different. The transcendence of God is he is, he is completely different than the thing that he makes. That's why God, and we often talk about God's uh, omniscience this way, sees time as an external reality. You live in time because you live in the time-space reality that, we, that we're talking in, that we're living in. God does not. The sin that you committed, this won't help you, right? When you were 12 years old is just as present to God as you sitting here learning tonight, as is where you'll be five years from now, as is the as the signing of the Declaration of Independence, as is the crucifixion of Christ, as is Moses sacrificing Isaac on Mount Moriah. Those are all ever-present realities for God. Passages like this, um, did I even put this one down? A a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Psalmist repeats that. Uh, Peter does in 2 Peter chapter 3. Time is not an issue for God. Time is not, God is not sitting around going, how long will it be? The how long issues are non-realities for the transcendent God. He is not subject to the boundaries of physical limitations and time limitations. 
God is transcendent. The boundlessness, the infinitude of God. Passage you might want to jot down is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 22. We speak of this often in the pictures of our God who just with a span of his finger can stretch out the heavens, who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. God is other. He's outside. He's separate. He is the creator. We can see this both in terms of time and space. And we'll learn this when we talk, we'll we'll focus on this when we talk about his eternality. Eternality, when we trip out on that concept, means that he is always, he always has been. That's transcendent in terms of time. This passage, Isaiah 40, he's transcendent in terms of space. Good, another great passage to jot down. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. 1 Kings 8, 27, dedication of the temple. The question is, but will God dwell on earth? No, the heavens and even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built? Remember that passage? Can't fit here because he is transcendent. He is beyond all limitations of time and all limitations of space. That is an amazing, comforting, that's an amazingly comforting concept for many reasons. When we talk about his sovereignty, we'll see this. But God is not living through time. Open theism, are you familiar with that concept? Puts God within time. The open theist, that's a new trend in theology and really the only consistent place. Can I, sidebar on this one. The, the basic pew warmer believes that God looks ahead, sees what happens, then he goes back and plans it all out. That's kindergarten nonsense. God does not look into the future, figure out what's going to happen, goes back into the planning mode and goes, well, I'll write that in there. That's a good plan. God is not waiting to see what you're going to do to decide what he's going to do to plan out everything. Or as D.A. Carson puts it, his will is not contingent on yours, right? Your will is contingent on his. That's another sermon. But when it comes to that kind of God, you realize that what we've got is a conundrum of what about what about the future? If God already planned everything out, how can we be culpable? That's the classic age-old problem of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. How can I really be a, a deciding, autonomous, choosing, free being if God's already planned this all out? The open theists have come in in the last 20 years and they've tried to solve the problem with the only consistent view out there, right? Because it's, the, it's not the kindergarten view. Their view is, and they're serious theologians, they, unfortunately the error is they see God in time. Their view is that God doesn't really know what's going to happen. That's called open theism. Now, he's a great odds maker though. I mean, you want to talk about Vegas? He's got, I mean, he looks at the two teams and it's UCLA, USC, I don't know, I know the quarterback, he's kind of hurt. And I know that guy, he's got a knee, weak knee, that could go out at any time. And look, their rushing game is great. And well, it's a home field advantage. And I know what that crowd's going to do in the ears of that quarterback. It doesn't really affect that guy. But okay, great. Odds are 50 to 1, USC's going to win. Sorry, I know. I didn't know, I didn't know which way to go with that illustration. <laughs> I'll probably get an email about that. But listen to me now. Here's the deal. They believe God's a great odds maker. And he is so good at predicting the future because he knows you all. He has incredible knowledge, but he doesn't know with certainty what's going to happen. When it comes to the big issues, he's got that wired. He knows for sure. But the small issues, he is really not sure what you're going to do with your socks tomorrow. Gray, brown, not sure. Doesn't know what shoes, ladies, you're going to pick. He's not real sure. He, he, I don't know. The odds are a little, you know, I don't know. 
three to one, maybe that, I don't know. See what I'm saying? That's open theism. And it's the only consistent view. The problem is it's not a biblical view. It doesn't match the propositions of Scripture. And it assumes that God is somehow not transcendent. He's living within time. And in reality, the transcendence of God says he is not bound by time or space. And in that reality, time is not an issue for him. That is not, not to make us fatalists. And you've heard this illustration I've used before. If God, even if you take God from the sovereignty of God and you extract it from God and you say, well, God just knows, you're still stuck with the same conundrum, the same problem. And that is, then you're, you're stuck, right? If God knows what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow, you can't have anything different. You're going to have what he already knows you're going to have. And in a practical sense, that's, that's as much fatalism as the sovereignty guy you don't like, Right? Because if he knows what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow, my old line is, well, trick him out and have something different, right? But you can't because his knowledge is perfect. Well, then if he already knows, then in, in reality, your whole life is all set. And you got the same problem as whether you have a high view of God. The only person that gets it right is that band of theologians who says God doesn't really know. You cover the philosophical problems. You're still stuck with biblical problems. And unfortunately, I don't think we understand God as... The old theologians used to say the infinitude of God or the unlimitableness of God or the boundlessness of God. That he is not only not bound by space, but he is not bound by time. Unlimited perfection. Unlimited perfection. This is the starting point for the actions of God, the attributes of God, the character of God, the way we describe the proclivities of God. When we start talking about the alls and the omnis, they're based on the fact that when it comes to whatever is good, he is all of that in the extreme. He is limitless. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high is his love for those who fear him. That's a kind of, that's a big love. Where does that stop? Well, how high is the heavens above the earth? It's limitless. That was the concept. That's a poetic way to say it's boundless. Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I'm unsearchable. His judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord has been his counselor? No one's ever going to be able to give to God that he should repay him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. The concepts of unlimited perfection bring us to the place of saying God is in every way that he should be unlimited. And that's an important transition to this next point. God is only limited by his perfection. God is only limited by his perfection. The old schoolyard taunt, can God make a rock so big he can't move it, has a biblical answer. The reason the school grade kids don't like to answer it is they get... They, they've already told their friend, God can do anything. Well, that's the wrong thing to say. We should say he is unlimited in his perfections, right? He is not unlimited in every way because there are some things he cannot do. What are some of the things God cannot do? Can't sin. Can't what? Can't lie. The Bible says that. Can't what? Cannot fail. Right? Cannot deny himself, can't die, can't change, he's immutable, can't be a uh, jerk, right? <laughs> because he's perfect, he's good, benevolent, can't disown people, 
who he's covenanted with. He can't break his promise. See what I'm saying? We could go on and on and on with a list of can'ts. Can God make a rock so big he can't move it? The answer is no. Why? Because he can move anything. So then I guess his creative power is not unlimited. You're right. It's, it is limited by his perfection. And his strength is perfect. 2 Timothy 2.13, Habakkuk 1.13, Titus 1.2. I just threw down a few passages. 2 Timothy 2.13, he cannot disown himself. Habakkuk 1.13, he cannot tolerate sin. Titus 1.2, he cannot lie. He can't change. He can't be evil. He can't make a square circle. He can't, I mean, and those are logical fallacies, right? You, he cannot... Uh, he cannot. In, he can't. He can't realize a, a a logical inconsistency. God is a God who is limited by His perfection. So sometimes the omni and all words need to be carefully understood. God is those things, and only finds their parameters by His perfection. All right. Lastly, God is self-existent. God is self-existent. The old school theologians called this aseity. Remember that word? Aseity in Latin, aseitas, through himself. He is who he is through himself. Aseity of God. He is self-existent. I mean, the old child question, well, who made God, right? Isn't that the problem? Even the evolutionist asks that, like a kindergartner. Well, who made God, right? Which you can ask that same question about everything, Right? Are we really arguing for an eternal infinitude of cause and effect? As the old preachers used to put it, either you have eternal matter or you have an eternal God. Either you have an uncreated reality or you have an uncreated being. We need something that is the unmoved mover, as the old philosophers put it. We need someone who is uh, a seatos. He is who he is through himself. That's the self-existence of God. He is, to put it another way, the only truly independent person. He is non-dependent, non-dependent. Every person is dependent. Everything is dependent. Our planet is dependent. Reality is dependent. Animals are dependent. We are dependent. Angels are dependent. The only true independent being is God, the aseity of God. He is non-dependent. Who made God? The answer is no one. That's the point. He is the uncreated, self-existing being. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 26. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 26. God, who made the world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. That's the only person you could say that about. As if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. What do you need? Well, you need a lot. Or you're not going to be. Use that verb carefully. You will not be if you don't have things. You need things. You are dependent Everything is dependent except for the undependent and uncaused one. As if he needed anything. No, he's the giver of all things. He doesn't take anything. Who can be his counselor? We read that in Romans uh, 11.33. 
who can give to God that he should repay him. God doesn't need anything. God needs nothing. That, by the way, will help us next week with the triunity of God. Well, isn't he lonely, existing forever? No, he's a triune, self-existent being. And we'll get into that next week. Revelation 4.11, be another cross-reference there. You are worthy, O God, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Every being has their cause in another being, ultimately in an uncaused being. And the Bible says there is an uncaused being, and let me put it that way, an uncreated and uncaused being. And I only want to make a second point out of this because... This is the essence of the divine name. Some of you are new to the church and and you wonder about this Yahweh thing I'm always saying. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. Let me explain this a little more fully. I meant to put the Hebrew sentence on on the PowerPoint for you because it's a play on words. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Moses said to God, he's there, burning bush conversation with an invisible flame, right? Invisible God in a flame. Moses said to God, hey, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. They ask me, what is his name? Who's this God you're talking about? Is it Ra? Is it uh, Jah? Is it, what is it? I don't know this God. Not an Egyptian God. What shall I say to them? God said to Moses. Now here's a weird phrase. Is it capitalized in your Bibles? I am who I am, right? Or I will be who I will be. It's, it's, a, uh, it's two verbs to be with a demonstrative pronoun in the middle. I, I, I am that I am. I, I am, I, 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 I will be, I, I exist that I am, that I exist. I, and that is a statement of a seity. That is a statement of, of an uncaused, self-sustaining being. That is the one you were to say. Uh, that is what you were to say to the Israelites. Say, I am has sent you. Now he shortens it. Ayah, ayah, asher, ayah. Ayah is, is, is the verb to be. Ayah. Does that sound a little bit like uh, Yahweh? <laughs> Yahweh? This is a play on words. Yahweh is his proper name. It's used over 7,000 times in the Old Testament. Yahweh. Yahweh is a derivative, is a form of the verb in Hebrew, to be. He is. He will be. He is. I am. Yahweh means that. And in this text, he says, I am who I am, that I am. I'm the self-existing one. I am only responsible for myself. In Latin, aseitas, I am through myself. I exist because of myself. So I am the ultimate one. This is what you are to say. Say, I am, Yahweh sent you. Now that's a form of it, derivative of it is Yahweh. How far to go? I had another question about Jehovah Witnesses this week. Um, And it was funny, I think it came through an email. Uh, The Jehovah Witnesses say we don't use uh, Jehovah, which is God's name, and we're called to bear their name. That's their standard line. Maybe you are a JW, you know that. Um, So come to our thing and we are bearers of God's name, Jehovah. Um, Jehovah, you know, is not a real word. Do you understand that? Uh, Jehovah is a conflation. You know what that means? It took two things and put them together. Peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Peanut butter and 
That's one thing, isn't it? Peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Um, that is a good way to remember it. Jehovah is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich word. How do you like that? <laughs> Yahweh, the verb to be, is what's translated Lord with a capital O-R-D in our Bibles. Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord with a small O-R-D. Sometimes they illustrate this with Pastor Mike. Pastor is my title. Mike is my name. Okay? If you were to go to Mexico and write a biography about me, which will never be done, uh, and they say, Pastor Miguel. Okay? But let's say they really were into me, and they just did not want to use my name because I'm so amazing. So they don't want to say Miguel because that's now become a sacred word. So they use the word pastor whenever they see the word Mike. And when in, in my biography, the word is Mike, they put in pastor. Mike went to the store. Mike bought an iPod. Mike dro- wants a Porsche, whatever they put, right? They, then, then they don't say Mike, they say pastor. The problem comes when the words come together. What happens in my biography when it says Pastor Mike? Ooh, problem. Okay, Pastor, Pastor, right? That's what they're stuck with. That was a problem. So in our Bibles, actually the NIV changes it. All the translations mess with that problem. But the issue is those two words that are translated the same way in most translations, um, they began to, because of the, what the, we call the tetragrammaton, the the the, the, the consonants for Yahweh. They took the vowels for Adonai and they laid them on top of the consonants for Yahweh and they created the word Yahovah, right? Yahovah. There's no Y's. All the Y words turned into J words. Yaqabed and, and, and Yosef and, and Yeshia, Yeshua. I'm sorry, Yeshua. Yeshua. All those turned to J's, right, in Latin. So then we had Jehovah instead of Yehovah. It's not a real word. It's a conflation of the vowels of Adonai and the consonants of, of Yahweh, and they were put together. Obviously, we know that's not what it is, and when we see the word there, and it's Yahweh, we know it's Yahweh, not, not Jehovah. There is no word Jehovah. Anyway, I don't know why I started that. I shouldn't even start that. But the point is, when people say, well, you don't use the name of God, we do. Every time you hear me read from the Old Covenant, I use God's proper name. Have you noticed that? Partly so the JWs will stop saying that I don't. <laughs> uh, because they don't if they're using the word Jehovah, which is really not even God's proper name. Proper name is Yahweh. That'll get me in trouble. But the point is, but it's true, look it up. Um, why don't we use the word? Why doesn't the average church use the word Yahweh? You know why, don't you? Think, think, think. Why? Because in the New Testament, we don't have it. Instead of Yahweh being used, even when the Old Testament was quoted by New Testament writers, they changed the word from Yahweh to the Greek word Lord, which is kurios. Kurios became the word the New Testament writers used. So we don't have it. And so my question is, even though I use it, and just to kind of, you know, if you're going to claim that we're supposed to bear his name and that means we say his proper name, here's my beef. New Testament writers didn't. You ticked at them too? See what I'm saying? They never used it. They used the word Lord instead. So I'm not upset, uh, about that at least, I'm not upset that, 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 New Test, that English translations don't use the word Yahweh. I think it would be cool if it did because New Testament writers don't. This is a play on words. 
Yahweh is his name 7,000 times. He is the self-existent. Every time you hear the word Yahweh, every time in the New Testament you see the word Lord, if it's a reference to God, the triune God, just know what we're saying is the self-existent one. That's what we're saying. Then that's why the question becomes so absurd. Who made God? Well, that's his whole name. I don't need a cause. I'm the self-existing one. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. This is the New Testament version of the angelic song. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then they add this phrase in Revelation 4, who was and who is and who is to come. Those are all the verbs to be in past, present, and future. And the concept here is, he is the I am. That's the point. That's his name, Yahweh. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Same concept. I am the first, I am the last. Apart from me, there is no other, there is no God. God is the self-existing one. He's always existed, uncreated, uncaused, non-dependent, the only true independent person, the self-existing creator. Now, what I'd like you to do, and because we don't have time but just to throw a lot of information at you, I'd love for you to take your worksheet. And even if you just did it on Friday mornings, if you're coming on Thursday nights, take it and on Friday mornings, instead of whatever your normal quiet time Bible study routine is, take this, some of these passages, pick a few, and devotionally try to stretch your mind a little bit farther over the God that we sing about and worship and the God who wrote, wrote the scriptures. That'd be my homework assignment for you. Let's pray together. God, thanks for this lecture time, this discussion about God and your nature, who you are, your character, your, um, your, your essence, your substance. Thank you, God, that you are a uh, a God that is not only uh, transcendent, but you are, you are ever-present. In these passages we looked at to try and understand anthropomorphisms, what a great thing. You, you, we are, you're our shelter, you're our fortress. We, we, we hide in you, we, we rest in you, we run to you, and we want to understand you better. So please help us, God, in this regard, to be the kinds of Christians that grow daily, that's a big, big concept. That's a big challenge, a big goal, but daily in our knowledge of God. We need to know you better, so help us in this endeavor. I pray that some people here would take me up on the challenge just to grab that worksheet on Friday mornings and their time in the Word. They'd pull it out and just spend time contemplating, meditating on the character of God and using the worksheet each Friday morning to do that. We do need to study you. As we assume who you are when we come to the text, I mean, every day we're assuming the God, of the, the author of the Bible, and what we need to do is to spend some time, at least two or three days a week, focusing exclusively on trying to understand your character better. So give us this so that it might improve our knowledge of you, might exalt our knowledge of you, so that our view of you might be more in keeping with reality. In Jesus' name, amen.